All right. We will continue our time, our study in this survey of church history. And um, it's very difficult every time I kind of start back into this, it's very difficult to kind of determine exactly where we left off because I know technically where we left off, but I always feel like we didn't really deal with, we kind of trailed off at the end last time. And then I think about, well, what topics, what areas do we need to cover? Again, you start looking at the book of Acts, which represents the first 30 years of the church's history, and it's very difficult to not want to just settle in on certain points and just really camp there for a while. Um, But I I fear that if we do too much of that, then we will actually be doing an expositional study of Acts, and we'll we'll never get out of the first 30 years. It'll be quite a a journey for us. And so uh, just bear with me. Find those places where you have seminal moments, seminal events, important uh, people um, that really hopefully characterize uh, some of the biggest sweeping transitions and movements uh, of God in building his church um, through the Holy Spirit and through his people. We started uh, last week in really looking at this period of the first two years of A.D. 30 to 32, which really is encompassed in the first eight chapters of Acts. We certainly didn't deal with uh, those eight chapters in in granular detail. We took a little bit of a, a summary approach to try to set in our minds some what I think and what I hope is some helpful context for us to really kind of put ourselves into the time and place of this New Testament church, this new work of God among his people. As they're gathered there in Jerusalem and the gospel is beginning there in Jerusalem and then expands out initially into Judea and Samaria in those first couple of years, and certainly beyond as we'll see, but that's the emphasis that Luke brings to us in these first eight chapters. As I said last time, this, this represents a major transition for God's people, um, and, and in particular for these, these disciples, these early followers, um, the, the 11 remaining apostles, less Judas, uh, the, those that were gathered, the 120 that were gathered there at Pentecost. I mean, you have to imagine, this is going from the empty tomb and all the and confusion and and uh, fear and anxiety, expectation and hope, disappointment—all those emotions, those those points of confusion—not really trying to being able to understand fully what God is doing, thinking you're on the right track, and then realizing maybe not, and then seeing the resurrection and trying to understand what that means. And even in the first chapter of Acts, the disciples are asking him, "Is it now that you're going to restore your kingdom?" So there's this. There's this period of time that we're in, which is a period of really substantive transition in this period from the empty tomb to where they're being commissioned in Acts chapter 1 by Jesus before he ascends, that you are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So they're, they're going from this period of time of three years of ministry in which Jesus, this anointed teacher, this possible, probable prophet, but maybe also this Messiah, this anointed one, this promised one who would be the savior of his people, emerges onto the scene, conducts his ministry among these 12 disciples, healings, combat with the Pharisees, all the way to the cross. Then you have the tomb, then you have this great commission. This period of time, three years leading up to Three years of ministry leading up to the, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Then commissioning. You're going to take this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm leaving. Um, go and wait, and I will send the Holy Spirit as I promised. So just a major period of transition. Now we also kind of moved ourselves forward in thinking about this transition as we focused in on the sort of the characteristics, the important characteristics of this early church in Jerusalem, this early early gathering of new believers and what was taking place there in Jerusalem proper in particular. So you have the first element here, which we talked about last time, which was this explosive growth. You have these references of 3,000 added to their number on day one. Peter preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 souls added to the church that day. But you also have these other references in Acts chapter 2. Day by day, people are being added to the church. 
Later on in Acts chapter 4, about 5,000 men uh, who heard the word believed. Acts chapter 5, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Acts chapter 6, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So you have these references in the first uh, eight chapters, and in particular, first six chapters prior to Stephen's, um, Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, you have this reference to this exploding movement where people are coming to faith in Christ in massive, significant numbers. The next thing we talked about is just a characteristic, an important characteristic, was this, this principle of apostolic authority amongst this early, these early believers. This is critically important for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, there was, there was authority that they carried in their teaching, in the development and formation of, of doctrine. What does all this mean? What does this mean in relation to the law of Moses and the prophets? What does this mean for conduct and for community action? And what does this mean for us as individuals and us as families? Uh, so this important um, principle of apostolic authority of divinely uh, anointed authority to teach and to sort of help formulate an understanding of truth that would ultimately be canonized in the pages of Scripture, but not yet. So this, this authority was really significant and really important and definitely uh, referenced in, in Acts chapters 1 through 8 and on throughout the rest of the, the, the letter or the, the history. They were authoritative in the fact that they were gifted with the ability to perform signs and wonders um, in their gospel witness. Uniquely, um, immediate healings, uh, the ability to, uh, Peter raises someone from the dead. You have the same kind of miracle or sign power that Jesus himself performed. They were given these, these abilities, these powers, as an as a, a, a indication to the people that these are men sent from God. What also very compelling as you look at this particular characteristic of apostolic authority, particularly in Acts, is how the focus invariably, immediately turns from the actual miracle that's performed to the teaching. You'll have a miracle that's performed, and then you'll have this teaching, this this platform for teaching, for presenting the gospel. And after this miracle and those that witness it, Luke records, they were astonished at the teaching. It's really kind of an amazing clarification that Luke provides here. And it's a really an important distinction that we're going to look at as we continue on today and we move forward in Acts. This clear distinction between being enamored with, wowed by, overwhelmed with, and un, unhealthily focused upon the sign gifts and not on the message of the gospel, the saving message of the gospel. And Luke is very careful to identify that, that these apostles were given this power and given this authority for these signs and wonders, but it was always this platform for gospel witness. And those who came to faith in Christ were not overwhelmed exclusively by the fact that they saw some miracle. In fact, you see Jesus in the Old Testament where the Pharisees are asking for a sign, and he's like, I'm not going to give you one. I mean, what more do you need to see? So this whole idea about being enamored with signs and wonders is a misplacement of the purpose of them, particularly in Acts and particularly in the wonders and signs were being performed the apostles to demonstrate that they had been given divine authority. They also had authority in the administration of the church. We saw that in a few different places um, where they were providing counsel and guidance on how the church need to, needed to function Maybe the most prominent in this particular section of Acts is when, um, in Acts chapter 6, when the seven deacons are chosen to help serve the church. There was an, uh, an unequal distribution of the proceeds that were being gathered together to help people, and really in particular to help the widows. And there was a particular group of widows, the, the Hellenist Jew, Jewish widows, the ones who had kind of an affinity for Greek culture, and they were being sort of left out of the portion of the distribution, so they weren't being well taken care of, in other words. And so the, the, apostles, um, the apostles sort of coordinate this selection of these seven godly men to help in this service of the church, uh, what we, we consider a deacon or a servant in the church, a, a servant in the church. So in other words, they also, we also saw that the church was characterized by this communal fellowship and continued temple worship. 
a very important feature to sort of set the context for what's going to happen next. Uh, a couple of different places in Acts chapter 2, again in Acts chapter uh, um, 4, I believe, you have this, this reference to them having all things in common. Um, you have this account where uh, you have this particularly potent account where you have um, Barnabas who sells a field and he brings all the proceeds and then that's followed by the account of Ananias and Sapphira who hold something back and God strikes them dead on the spot. Um, kind of jars us a little bit, and we're just like, whoa, what, that seems kind of harsh. Maybe our initial reaction is that was a pretty harsh punishment. Completely turn our perspective inside out on that and recognize that all of us, every moment, with the sin in our own hearts, are worthy of that kind of punishment. It's not that that was harsh. It's that we are abounding in God's graciousness right now. And that's, that's really the principle, that at any given moment, uh, God would be just and doing that kind of thing. But nevertheless, you have this communal fellowship that's taking place where they're having all things in common. This was primarily of necessity because you had all these people, all these pilgrims, all these Jewish pilgrims who had come far and wide from all over the place to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit and this new work and move of God and people coming to faith in Christ and then beginning to assemble and them actually staying for a longer period of time than they initially planned in Jerusalem to be taught, to be led, to understand what this means, to know what it would mean for them to go out from here. Uh, and to, and this is of necessity. They, they had to, people didn't have their same jobs. They didn't have their, all their resources that they needed. They didn't have homes. They had left their homes to come. There was this communal fellowship that was taking place. But also, they were very Jewish in their worship. In other words, there wasn't this wholesale abandonment of their Judaism and their Judaistic practice and worship. Many, many times you see these references of what was taking place at the temple. So they continued to honor the Sabbath. They continued temple worship. They continued in the uh, rituals of the Jewish faith. The, the The Jerusalem church was very Jewish in its orientation in the, uh, in the areas of worship. Uh, and so that's a very important distinction that we'll... we'll kind of highlight a little bit more as we go forward. We also noticed last week how there was growing hostility from the Jewish leaders. And it really was this escalation of hostility that, that you could see kind of Luke recording, where they go from being annoyed to kind of perplexed and feeling threatened by this new movement to being jealous of the popularity that the apostles were gaining amongst the people to ultimately becoming enraged. And that's what you see happening there toward the end of this section, particularly when you get to... Stephen's message to them prior to him being martyred, prior to him being stoned, where they are moved to absolute rage. So this hostility toward the Jerusalem church, it grows over this period of time. It's important to note that because there was a period of time where there was this effort underway for the Jewish leaders to try to sort this out, to figure it out. There was political pressure for them to maintain peace. You had the Roman sort of overlords who were like who had granted to these Jewish leaders authority to rule as long as they could keep all these Jewish people in check and to prevent them from causing riots or disturbing the peace. So there was all kinds of pressures, political, from, from the Roman overlords, from the internal pressures, from them not wanting this popular new movement to create a pull away from their power base of authority. So there was these, there was these political efforts that were underway to try to figure out how can we, can we keep this together? Can we keep our power base as the Sanhedrin, as the Sadducees primarily, who were, had a, an affinity for the Roman movement, enjoyed this power that they, they, they had for so long? But how do, we, how do we kind of keep all this in check, and can we work this out? But that, that kind of effort gradually moves to, this is getting out of hand, we're starting to lose control, they're getting more popular, to ultimately them not even being able to stand what they're hearing or what they're seeing happen, and it moves to complete rage. And that really culminates uh, with the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. So now we're going to try to pick up another bigger section. And what we find happening in Acts, in this historical account of the church, of the early church, first 30 years, what ends up happening is you have sort of two years in Acts chapter 1 through 8, but then you have sort of the pace or the chronology of things really accelerate after this. So you no longer are looking at, you know, like two years of time over the next eight chapters. It's a lot more time. So for example... If we take this next sort of swath of information of data from, from Luke and Acts, 
And we say we're going to go from Samaria all the way to Asia Minor, which would be to Paul's first missionary journey, which actually ends in, um, in chapter 15, or, or it culminates, if you will, maybe is a better way to say it, it culminates uh, with the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So you go from Acts 8, which the, really the, the bulk of Acts chapter 8, all the way to Acts chapter 15, and you're going from AD 32 to about AD 48 or 49. So you're talking about a much sort of more rapid pace, a much bigger span that's being covered in this particular section of of Acts. Now, as we said before, with the Jerusalem church, they're undergoing a major, major transition. I mean, this is this is a, a, a new move of God, and it has all kinds of implications for them in terms of adjustment, in terms of sorting out and figuring out, in terms of relationships, in terms of community involvement, temple worship. There's so many things that are going on that they're having to sort of adjust to in this very tight period of time. A lot is happening. But you also have this major transition that's taking place as we get into this next sort of phase, really beginning with or launching with the, the stoning of Stephen you really have a transition of what I have called this transition from Judaism to Christianity. Now, I, I want to give a caveat to that. Uh, I don't want to articulate that they are completely separate and that they're totally unrelated. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that, as just as we said before, where the Jerusalem believers were very temple-centric in their worship, they retained their Jewish practice and Jewish ritual, um, they maintained uh, adherence to the Sabbath. They, 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 they were very Jewish-centric in their, in their worship and even in their developing understanding of what this new work of God in Christ really meant. What you start to see happening is this transition to, away from that, that kind of um, centralized focus as a priority or even a necessity to be faithful in Christian faith and witness and life. Okay, that's what I mean by that. In fact, if you look at a few different historians, you've got Justo Gonzalez in his book, The Story of Christianity. He says the earliest Christians did not consider themselves followers of a new religion. All their lives they had been Jews and they still were. Their faith was not a denial of Judaism, but was rather the conviction that the Messianic age had finally arrived. For this reason, Christians in Jerusalem continued to keep the Sabbath and attend worship at the temple. And then you have Bruce Shelley in his book, Church History, in plain language. He said, in all outward respects, their lifestyle resembled any other Jewish sect of the time. They showed no signs of rejecting the law of Moses or the authority of the temple. This was the character and nature of Christianity, if you want to call it that. It wasn't called that at this particular time. This was the character and nature of the early church. It was very much a Judaistic-centric group of people that functioned very much this way. Now, off the top of your head, without, without cheating and, and thinking about some passage of Scripture that you already know, I'm kidding, but off the top of your head, can you just think of some practical potential problems with that, just that reality? Even though, by the way, I'm pointing all this out because I think it's important for us to understand if we're going to understand the work of God in, in time, space, and in history, and to understand His work among people, for us to have an appropriate empathy for what was going on then, as opposed to looking back with 2020 hindsight, with a perspective of kind of like arrogance and a little bit of disdain, like, why didn't you guys get it? Or why, why, you know, why, were, you, why were you making these theological mistakes? Or whatever, whatever might creep into our thinking. We always need to be looking back in time, with a level of humility and even a degree of empathy. This is all they knew. They were trying to sort this out and figure this out. So we need to really recognize that that's what was going on at this particular time. However, in light of what the mission was, what might be some pitfalls to all of this? Yes? It almost sounds like to me, if someone has become a Christian and they go back to the Catholic Church. Because you're listening to all of this, you know the Messiah has come. That they 
but they're hearing all of this. We're waiting for the Messiah, and they're, they're hearing all of these things that are not being taught by the apostles. Right. I mean, two different... So confu names. confusion? Yeah. Confusion among the people? What about... Yeah, go ahead, Kim. Okay, so that's that is absolutely true. It's also it's also I think one of the benefits of having a fully developed canon with a, a fully developed doctrine of atonement of the atonement, you know, in, in, in their minds. But you're right that was that was sort of the theological offense that had to be dealt with that the apostle Paul ultimately had to kind of help them understand even in his writings. That's right, and, and even on another kind of related, maybe this is in, right in line with what you're saying, but certainly related is what does what does my witnessing obligation mean? Like, where do I go, and what do I tell them to actually do? Where, where do they go? You know, I mean, and who do I go to? I mean, there's just there's a lot of sort of potential pitfalls that we end up seeing playing out in in bold relief as we move forward here. But the fact of the matter is, this, this just kind of getting our minds into this time and this place of what kind of monumental transition this was. And I think it's an important principle for us to be reminded of, not just in light of our study of church history, but even in thinking about our own discipleship. God is not um, out of the business of completely exploding our Consistently showing himself to be oriented toward often exploding our established sort of categories that we set up that we ultimately become very comfortable in operating in. And so I think that there's a level of caution for us, even as God's people today, to where we need to be constantly scrutinizing and evaluating ourselves, our sort of our, our set of beliefs, our, our doctrine the things that inform what we do as God's people, we need to be constantly evaluating and scrutinizing them against Scripture and against what God has said clearly. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that, that people who have been very, very sound in their doctrine and yet very, very um, off base in their virtue and in their kindness toward others and their practice of godliness amongst people God's people. I mean, you see what I'm saying? So we have to be very, very careful that we don't allow ourselves to become so sure that we've got everything dialed in. And so because we've got the structure or the framework of our doctrine very well established, and we believe it's very tightly uh, uh, understood from Scripture, it comes out of the pages of Scripture, so it's authoritative. And so we begin to operate our lives, our, our worship, our personal devotion, our evangelism, our engagement in, in other people and acts of service, we begin to operate out of that framework, believing that it's solid and sure, and we never really scrutinize or evaluate or test or wonder, you know, maybe, maybe I've established a certain pattern here that I think is right and just and proper, but I'm experiencing some tension here, some spiritual tension, some relational tension. Maybe, maybe my categories are getting blown up a little bit. Yeah. Like I think a lot of the, the, the Jews, even though they may have had the new revelation, understood Christ as Messiah, but what you're saying is the, the tradition and just being locked up. I mean, I worked at Grace Church the last few years when they were remodeling and changing a lot of things to make it not necessarily a secret-friendly church, but to make it more open for fellowship mm -hmm. because 
it seems like with a lot of social media and a lot of things, people just aren't fellowshipping. So a lot of changes were happening, and a lot of people just could not handle it. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, it, it, usually there's things that they just were so used to, like, that's almost scripture, the way we did things there. Right. We and I think a lot of the, the, the Jews, I mean, even like, you know, Paul had reviewed Peter and stuff, like, they, they just fell into these traditions because they were just so used to these, and just, you know, didn't, you know, maybe even equate that that was even against what the new revelation was. Yeah. You know, in Christ and his death and um, I think that's a challenge sometimes even for the church today to get so stuck that's, in, in your traditions. Yep. And that, like, you know, or, you know like, I mean, I've, I've seen different churches, you, you know, going from one church to a different church that, you know, does communion different. And it is, it is I, we went to a church for a while back in L.A., you know, we liked a lot of things about it, but they did their communion a little different. And it was just like, it was really hard. Yeah. Like, it was like, yeah. it just it didn't seem pagan almost, but it was, yeah. there was nothing wrong with it. Yeah. It just, it's. You know, different traditions. So I'm sure for the, the Jewish people at that time, there was probably a, a hard thing for a lot of people to give up the temple yep. and to give up those traditions. Yep. And we canonize we canonize our preferences, don't yeah. we? We 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 inscripturate our preferences as well. It's another uh, danger. In fact, the, a lot of a lot of the sort of the common Jewish practice uh, that had been characterized as as appropriate. You know, honor and virtue and worship of God um, was significantly just adding to God's revelation. You know, line after line after line. But yeah, we tend to just in, we tend to canonize and scripturate our preferences and what what we're comfortable with or what we've always known. And God's in the business of blowing some of that stuff up from time to time. Yeah, I think we also associate thoughts with people, like your favorite. People that you respect, mm -hmm. teachers, uh, even now, I mean, John Piper says this, or uh, MacArthur says this. Mm -hmm. um, not coming from Scripture, but coming from that person. And I imagine they would do the same thing. I mean, you, you were a follower of Saul at one point, mm -hmm. and he was the man, and now he's changed his mind and done something different. Yeah. How, do, how do I handle that? Yeah. He taught me something different before. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. These are all very good w things to highlight that these people were going through that we, we have to. We have to be ready to deal with in our own lives and be and be thoughtful about. Well, you have this major transition, as I said, from this Judaistic centric way of thinking about this new work and move of God to just this being kind of blown up and exploded in some significant way. And of course, this all really um, comes to a fever pitch uh, with the stoning of Stephen. Um, you have obviously this is not a. Uh, an eyewitness rendering of the account, just so you know. This is a, a, a sculpture of, of, you know, kind of an, capturing uh, artistically the, the event there. Um, but in this particular event, you have a... Th this, is, this is what launches this new wave of persecution that you, you see uh, introduced in Acts chapter 8. But it doesn't just launch this new wave of persecution. You have with Stephen... And his his stoning, the first martyr, you also have someone else who is on the scene, right? You have there in Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-eight, this initial reference to Saul of Tarsus. It says there in Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-eight, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, meaning Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this particular rendering, it's, this is a more expanded view, and you see the arrow pointing to this artistic rendition of there's the young man, Saul, witnessing the entire event. It goes further, though. When you get into Acts chapter 8, you not only see Saul as witnessing the event, but he's heartily approving of this. It says in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on church in Jerusalem, and I'm, I'm skipping a few uh, portions of this just to focus on Saul. Uh, Saul was ravaging the church. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is Saul. Now, here's the thing that I think is so compelling about this. And we talked about this as we were introducing this entire study, especially when, you're start, when we move out and we start dealing with extra-biblical historical sources of information and we start thinking about the church's history from that vantage point, to just once again 
recognize that the history of the church is the history of the work of God amongst his people. Here you have Saul, who we know ultimately becomes Paul, who we know ultimately becomes this great apostle to the Gentiles, who we know is for writing a majority, a large majority of any other, relative to any other authors of the New Testament scriptures, of refining the doctrinal understanding of the new covenant amongst his people, Paul. But here he is in a completely different frame of mind, completely on the other side of this whole movement. And yet, even still, God is using Saul his church. This is one of the greatest examples and testimonies of the providential working of God that he will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. And when he said in Matthew chapter 16 that nothing will stand against it, the gates of hell will not prevail against me building my church, even a young man like Saul standing by and being given authority to ravage the church, God says, fantastic, this will be one of the ways that I use what you meant for evil, I will turn it into good. Because what happens is that the church begins to spread, right? In Acts chapter 8, you see, now those who were scattered, so this great persecution comes, and it results in the scattering of most of the church in Jerusalem. Many from the church in Jerusalem are scattered, except for the apostles, it says. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it starts, you have Jerusalem. Now those who were scattered, that's a reference to those who were in Jerusalem, it says they went about preaching the word. So they left Jerusalem and they went about. Well, that spreads them out into the larger region beyond the, the confines of the city of Jerusalem into the area of Judea. And then we see the account of Philip being introduced, where Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them the Christ. Just according to what Christ said before he ascended, witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, little did they know that part of this would include suffering. Part of this would be stimulated even by persecution, by what would be, by every reasonable observation, a completely unjust execution of a faithful man, a godly man. And yet what God does is he uses it to continue this progress of the gospel and of the witness of the gospel and of the witness of his resurrection and the implications of that to spread his word from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and even larger than that to the ends of the earth. Because we find as we go forward in Acts chapter 11 verses 19 to 21, uh, Luke records those who were scattered, so he's referring back to this particular moment in time, he says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far, now get this, this is out of Samaria now, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So there you have this Jewish-centric witness. They're now only taking the gospel outside Samaria. So you start looking at the ends of the earth, Phoenicia, this coastal strip along the Mediterranean, um, then on to Cyprus, which is a, an island out, out in the Mediterranean, off of, kind of off the coast of Syria. And then Antioch, which is up in Syria, up near the tip where the land curves around the Mediterranean and moves over toward Asia Minor. But they, they're only speaking the word to no one but the Jews. However, in Acts, uh, 19, 20, excuse me, Acts 11, 20, Luke says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and of Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. The Gentile witness is, is happening as a result of this. Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and great, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It's important to note that this spread of the gospel is happening organically. And so when the Apostle Paul and, and, uh, begins his missionary enterprise, he's already going to where there are believers even Gentile believers, as a result of this persecution that spread people out, and, uh, and faithful people who recognize that this message of the gospel was not just for the Jews, 
also began to evangelize Gentiles, even as a result of this persecution. But what you have happening with the 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 apostles in particular, let's just think of Peter as, as sort of the lead representative of the, um, of the apostle and the leaders of the, of the Jewish church. As a result of this persecution and as a result of this, this major shift, you're having several transitions that are taking place, several categories of transition that are important to note, and Luke really highlights all of this for us. You first of all have this expansion of the gospel witness and of the work of the ministry of the apostles that expands geographically. There's a, a major geographic transition that gets underway after this, after this persecution begins following the stoning of Stephen. You also have a transition in strategy, a transition maybe in, in, in who's the target of this ministry. And we'll, we'll look at that in a little more depth in just a little bit if we have time. If not, we'll do it next week. But you start to see this, this move approach where, yes, they always end up starting with the synagogues, but God is going to move them out from the synagogues and out from the Jewish people and make them more intentional about taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And we'll talk about that in, in some of the nuances with that that strategy as well, as we, as we see this unfold in, in future sections of Acts. There's also this major shift or transition in their theology. They are having to understand, and we'll see this, it, it develops in controversial ways, which ultimately is what the, uh, the Jerusalem Council was all about in Acts chapter 15. When we get there, we'll talk about it. But they're having to shift their theology away from, we are the holders of the promise of the law. We are the the chosen people of God. And so our job is to bring people in to our understanding of God's work rather than we are the vehicle through which the work of God is to flow out to peoples of all tongues, tribes, and nations. They're having to completely sort of reorient their thinking about what their actual theology is, their system of understanding of how God works, what God has called them to, what this, what this ministry of witness, gospel witness really means from a theological perspective. So there's this major transition that's underway here in all these various areas. We see this begin to happen in, in a significant way, in a, in a sort of important way with the ministry of Philip. We see that in Acts chapter 8. Verses 4 to 40, you see this map and it kind of gives you an indication of his, his journey, his travels, and, and where his, this ministry takes him. Of course, he begins there in Jerusalem. You see that outside arrow starting there, here in Jerusalem, and he works his way up to Samaria. That's where his ministry begins. Of course, we see that at the very beginning there in Acts chapter 8. And, and we see there in the first few verses, Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, we see how his ministry amongst the Samaritans is very effective. Many people believe there's joy in the city, there's joy in the region because of Philip taking the gospel to these Samaritans. Now, this, this is an iterative step. This is, this is, this is a, a gospel to the, the half-Jewish, half half-Gentile people. So you have this important transition where now we're going to Samaria. And what we know about the relationship of the, the Jews with the Samaritans is that the Samaritans were not pure. They were defiled. They were not of the, the pure line of, of Abraham. So this is another step in taking this gospel message to the Samaritans. It's, it's something that, that God accomplishes as a result of moving people out and scattering them as a result of this. An interesting uh, a little um, note here. A person that's introduced in this in this witness in Samaria, Simon the magician. He's uh, other references refer to him as Magus. To the the term there uh, for magician, Simon Magus or Simon the magician. You have this account in in Acts chapter eight, verses nine to twenty four. This is a very important. Um, principle-loaded account of Simon. 
you have, after the Samaritan witness with Simon, you have this account where Simon is known in the area for wowing people with his incantations and his ability to manipulate people into believing that he can perform uh, miraculous works of magic. Interestingly enough, in the process of, of Philip's ministry in Samaria and him witnessing uh, to the Samaritans, it says that even Simon believes. In fact, that's in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So you have reference to Simon, who was known for his manipulation of people in his magic, in his works of sorcery, in his feats of supernatural power, uh, known in the area. People were amazed by what he could do. It says there at the very top in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the peoples of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he had a reputation, and it was, he was well known. But then Philip comes to town, begins to witness to the, to the death and resurrection of Christ and the implications of that, and even Simon believed, it says in verse 13. Now, you have this reference since the beginning in, in chapter 8, verse 14, that again highlights this apostolic authority principle because you have uh, in chapter 8, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So you have this apostolic authority in Peter and John coming to Samaria. Luke here is describing for us a seminal moment and a seminal new movement of God in this, this spreading of this gospel witness to the people of Samaria. So much so that when those in Jerusalem heard about it, the apostles primarily, they sent Peter and John. And they came down, it says in verse 15, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And this whole move of God is unique. It's distinct. And it's happening in these distinct and discrete sort of phases. And this is another, another part of this transition uh, from a Judaistic to a more comprehensive Christian faith. So with the Samaritans, they come, Peter and John, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, now we have Simon, Simon the magician. He saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That would be a noble gesture, right? So thankful for Simon's willingness to want to lay hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't see it that way. Verse 20, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I mean, this is a stern rebuke from Peter. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoke the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is a significant event that Luke records for us because you have someone who believes, quote-unquote, and is baptized and yet rebuked for their wickedness and their really their sin against wanting to manipulate the gift of the Holy Spirit to their own advantage. Now, interestingly enough, the story of Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, extends beyond the pages of Scripture and beyond uh, Luke's account here in Acts. Church fathers like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus writing about Simon Magnus. Um, there's not 100% certainty that all that they write about is, is verifiable and true, but here's what Justin Martyr goes on to say. Justin Martyr, in his, his historical work, he's describing what Luke is recording here in Acts, and then he continues on by saying this, after Peter rebukes him, he says, of, of Simon Magus, Simon the magician, he then, not putting faith in God a whit, the more, 
he set himself eagerly to contend against the apostles in order that he himself might seem to be a wonderful being and apply still greater zeal to the study of the whole magic art that he might the better bewilder and overpower multitudes of men. You have this, this encounter which highlights for us potentially someone who exhibits a false faith, who exhibits by way of confession and outward act of baptism what ultimately yields a non-saving, non-redeeming exercise of belief. That's a huge, significant event there that takes place. You don't have any reference in Luke. Luke does not give us any other indication of, of how the story ends with Simon. All we have is, is what we see from some of the early church fathers' writings. But nevertheless, it's an important point. And when you think about this whole issue of, of the manipulation of power and using it to manipulate people, the use of power to manipulate and control people for greed purposes, for the, for the sake of gain, of personal gain and enrichment, that has been part to, um, to compromise faith and to leading people astray in mass for centuries. That's been a common characteristic, and we see Luke highlighting that here for us with this account of Simon the Magician. He goes on from there to his witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, again spreading this gospel witness and this gospel message even further. You have this... this um, Officer of, the, of, of Candace, as, she, as she's called, the Ethiopian court, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all, he was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. So here you have an example of what would be characterized as a God-fearer. It's a Gentile who has adopted monotheism and Judaistic monotheism and has become faithful to the extent that a on Jew can be faithful to the So again, if you're thinking about this, this iterative process that's underway here, you have the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, then it starts spreading to Judea as a result of the persecution, and then we have Luke describing explicit ministry that Philip takes to Samaria. But then you also have this witness that's taking place with a God-fearer, a Gentile, who is... Um, has adopted monotheism, Judaistic monotheism as their religious commitment and conviction. That's who the Ethiopian eunuch represents. Because, and we know this because when, when uh, Philip is sent to him by an angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, go to Gaza, and he sees this Ethiopian in his chariot, chariot he's reading from Isaiah. So he's, he's reading from a scroll of Isaiah. He's reading from Isaiah 53, the account of, suffering servant, and he asked, he asked Philip to explain to him who this is talking about. And of course, Philip goes on to explain to him, this is speaking of Christ and what Christ has done in bearing sin and, and being a Savior. And then ultimately, the Ethiopian eunuch, they come to water and he's baptized. This is an example of the, the gospel witness going to the God-fearers, going to those who are of Gentile descent, but who fear the Lord and who are um, monotheistic, Judaistic in their belief orientation. Again, this is a distinction from the out-and-out pagan Gentile. And that's where you see the Apostle Paul's ministry really be focused and thrive, where you're talking about people who have no understanding, no familiarity, no adherence to anything related to historical Judaism, to monotheism, or anything. And so you see the gospel witness go beyond Jerusalem and a very Jewish-centric faith amongst very Jewish-centric believing people to the Samaritans who are sort of these half-breed Jewish and, and Gentile mix to God-fearers who are Gentile but they have adopted a belief and an adherence to as much as they can to a Judaistic practice and worship. And then beyond that with the Apostle Paul's ministry and beyond to the absolute pagan world of the Gentile, who has zero reference point to anything monotheistic or Jewish in its orientation. So when we talk about this major transition from Judaism to Christianity, I mean, we're talking about this in a very sweeping kind of way. Geographically, 
uh, in terms of strategy and who, who, who's the target of the ministry, uh, theologically, all of that, all those different ways, um, it's, it's, a, it's a major, major shift and a major, major transition. Well, uh, after the Ethiopian eunuch, we see um, that Philip heads to Gaza, and then he begins to minister up the coast along the Mediterranean all the way up to Caesarea, and he ends up in Caesarea, which is a major uh, Roman, um, a major Roman post uh, there in um, that region, and he stays there for a long time and ministers there. But the scripture tells us that he continues to to share the gospel all the way up the coast. So you see Philip being very instrumental also in this gospel witness coast all the way up to Caesarea. Well, then you get to Acts chapter 9, and you see Saul's conversion around AD 32. And I think we're going to need to stop there, even though I'm I'm really excited to kind of keep going. Um, you have this amazing event in Acts chapter 9, and really this is, this is a, a pivotal point which launches the gospel witness to the ends of the earth in, in massive fashion. But not without trial and not without controversy, because that's where we're going to end up when we get back to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem Council after Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, and we see what happens there, which really ties us back to this Judaistic-centric kind of belief about the implications of the gospel on people and how they should live. We'll see how all that ties together when we get to the Council in Acts chapter 15. All right. Flying through this. Any questions or comments before we close in prayer? Yeah. Uh, I meant to ask this earlier, but were Peter and the other apostles going to the temple as well? Yes. At that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they were, they were I mean, it's, you have even reference in Acts where they're ministering in the temple. Yeah. Yeah, so they're... The, the, other, the other point I meant to make, I just, now, I just now remembered. The rage and hostility that elevated and escalated and led ultimately to this initial wave of persecution of these new Christians in Jerusalem, it wasn't that these new Christians, these new, these new believers, these new followers of the way, uh, were this new sort of external sect that you know, was defiant against monotheism lived in a world and in a time where pantheism was common. I mean, they, they were familiar with all the various mystery religions and all the various um, forms of idol worship. So they, they were, this was not something that would have been uncomfortable for them because they had people that were believing in some other kind of God other than the one true God. The problem for the, the Jews was their own people who were taking this on. That was the problem. That was the source of conflict. These people were too close to home. These people were too much a part of them. And so they were they had to they had to be eradicated. They were they were that's the central motivation, the central driver of that that persecution. All right, we'll pray and we'll be dismissed.